All right, well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you're new here today and have no idea who I am, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church. And so if you're tuning in here for the first time, I just want you to know that we are so glad you are here. If you are living here in the greater Memphis area, or if you are tuning in from somewhere around the nation, we are so glad that you are tuning in. And we want you to know that here at High Point Church, you are welcomed home. Now, before I jump in this morning, um, I want to begin by giving you a quick update. As many of you know, um, our state, the the state of Tennessee, is in the process of reopening, um, and that process has several phases to it. Um, So what I want you to know here on the front end of my sermon is that uh, the staff, uh, the lead team, and the elders are all working alongside me and we are uh, praying and we are conversing and we are processing, trying to figure out when the best time for us to return is. And so I am informing you of this to know that our hope is to have an answer here in the next couple weeks. Um, But as we uh, are wrestling, I need you to know that during this season, um, we are praying, uh, we are researching, we are collaborating with other churches. But as you pray for us, here's what I would love for you to know. There's a few things, uh, there's a few priorities, a few values that are kind of helping uh, give us direction in this season as we make decisions. The the first thing, uh, the first value, the first principle um, that we are taking into account as we make this decision is we we want clarity from God. Before we do anything, we want to make sure that we have clarity from God. That's our first priority. The second priority is the safety of our people the safety of our people. We want to make sure that whatever decision we make um, is with your safety in mind. We, the last thing we want to do is come back too early and put our people uh, in harm's way. And then the third thing, the third value or the third priority is the quality of our experience. Uh, and what I mean by that is we want to make sure that we, we take enough time so that when we come back, we can offer a similar quality of experience. So those three things are the things that are helping us navigate our decision making, the clarity from God, the safety of our people, and the quality of our experience. And so as you pray for us, uh, we would love for you to pray along those lines. Uh, I can say, though, um, that my hope is that, Lord willing, in the next couple weeks, so on May 24th, um, I want to give you an update. My hope is that by May 24th, uh, based on the different information that keeps coming out, we will be able to give you a pretty solid idea of what the summer is going to look like here at High Point Church. But I just want you to know that this is at the forefront of our minds, it's at the forefront of our prayers, and it's at the forefront of our conversations. But we would really appreciate your prayers in this season. Now, this morning, uh, let me get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, this morning, we are in the fourth installment. We are in the fourth week of our Psalm series entitled Psalms, a mixtape for our lives. And our passage this morning comes to us from Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. So what I want to do is go ahead and read it here for us. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your app, uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 90. Or if you don't have either, uh, I will be reading and the words will be here on the screen. So Psalm 90, and it's 17 verses, and I'm going to read it here in its entirety. Here's what the word of God says. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, 
forever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In verse 12, here is the the heart of the psalm. Verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as you have seen as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That is the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, uh, the title for my sermon this morning is this. Every day counts. As, as I have studied Psalm 90 in general, and I've looked at verse 12 in particular, I would argue that, that the, the best summary of this passage is this. Every day counts. Let's go ahead and say that together. Ready? Every day counts. Now, there's a few things, a couple observations that I want you to notice here about this phrase, every day counts. The first thing that I want you to see is that it's every day that counts. Not every week, uh, not every month, not every year, not every decade. According to Psalm 90 in general, in verse 12 in particular, every day counts. Now, here's why this is so important, because many times when we think about our time, right, and, and, and managing our time, we like to think in weeks. We like to think in months. We like to think in years. Sometimes we even speak in decades, right? So, so you will hear someone say, man, I got a busy week ahead of me, or man, we have a few weeks left before this quarantine is over, or man, in, in a few months, I'm going to go on vacation, and I can't wait Right? Or, or at the beginning of the new year, we love doing this. Uh, I, 2020, I'm going to do this, this, and this. We, we make all these resolutions for what 2020 is going to look like. Now, there's nothing wrong with planning, but as many of us have discovered, it's foolish for us to assume that a year is going to go the way we think. It's foolish for us to assume that 2020 was going to go the way we planned because clearly 2020 has not gone the way any of us have planned. But I would argue that the, the height of foolishness is when people try to tell you what they're going to do in their 30s or in their 40s or in their 50s. When we have the audacity to talk about what's going to happen a decade from now or two decades from now. What I want you to see in light of Psalm 90 is that it's not every week that counts, not every month, not every year, not every decade, even though they, they matter, it's every day 
counts. Every day counts. And one of the things that I find fascinating when I look at scripture is that the Bible is all about days. It's all about the 24-hour period. And I'll give you examples of this. In, in the book of Exodus, God provides manna for the people of his people, and he gives them manna on a daily basis. He, he literally says to them, don't try to store any manna for tomorrow because that manna will go bad. It will spoil. I will provide for you on a daily basis. Then in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to us about how to pray, Jesus says, give us our daily bread. In scripture, it says that God's mercies are new every morning. Every day, God gives us new mercies. Uh, There's a place uh, in the epistles where it says that outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In the Old Testament, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus actually talks about worry. He says, do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has its own problems. Focus on today. So what I want you to see is that I intentionally use that title, Every Day Counts, because the Bible is all about our days. Not our weeks, not our months, not our years, not our decades. The Bible is all about our days. The other thing that I, that I want to show you here that I think is really important about this title before we jump in is I need you to notice that the phrase is every day counts. I, it doesn't say make every day count. It says every day counts. So, so this week, out of curiosity, I typed in the phrase make every day count. And what I discovered is that all throughout the internet, Right? You do a search on Google and you see all these articles, all these blogs um, about how to make every day count, that, that, that your days belong to you. And if you want to make every day count, these are the four tips. These are the six things you have to do to make every day count. I want you to see the phrase doesn't say make every day count. The phrase says, the title is every day counts. Here's why that's important. Because whether you make a day count or not, a day still counts. What we see in Psalm 90 is that every day counts whether you make it count or not. That's why the title is not make every day count, because if if that was the title, then the impression I would be giving you is that it's up to you. And that's not the gospel. That's religion. It's not up to you. Every day counts regardless of whether you make it count or not. And that's what I need you to see. Here's the other thing about this idea of making every day count. If every day counts then we should make every day count. Does that make sense? If every day counts, the reason why we should make every day count is because every day counts. Or to put it in another way, in the passage, uh, Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The reason why we should number our days is because our days are already numbered. Does that make sense? That's what I want you to see, that the reason why we should make every day count is because every day already counts whether we make it count or not. And that's why the title of the message this morning is Every Day Counts. So in this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to learn three things about time. We're going to learn three things about timeline and God's perspective and our perspective on time. We're going to look at this subject of time from three different angles. I want to begin this morning by looking at God's time. Then after we look at God's time, we're going to look at man's time. And then we're going to conclude by looking at how we can synchronize 
our time with God's time. So we're going to begin by looking at God's relationship with time. Then we're going to look at man's relationship with time. And then we're going to conclude by seeing, once we see God's timing and man's timing, we're going to conclude by seeing how can we, as people, make sure that we synchronize our time with God's time. So let's begin this morning by looking at God's time. Look what it says uh, in verses one through four of the passage. I'm going to reread verses one through four. Here's what it says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So the first thing that I want you to see here in this psalm about time is I want you to see God's relationship to time. The first thing that, that stands out to me as I read this psalm is that Moses, he, he, he begins the psalm by looking at God. He, he begins with God. In other words, his, he, he doesn't have a horizontal focus. He has a vertical focus. He, he begins the psalm vertically by looking at God. In other words, the main character of this psalm is not Moses, uh, is not the Israelites. It's God. God is the main character of this psalm. And then the first thing we find out, uh, Moses says in verse one, uh, uh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, the word there, uh, dwelling place, here's what it means uh, in the Hebrew. The word there, dwelling place, means a place of refuge, uh, a safe place, or it can mean a place of rest and comfort. Now, here's what I discovered this week that I didn't know. The, the Hebrew word there for dwelling place can actually mean a den of a house, a den. Not a den of robbers, but a den in a house. Now, now think about what a den is, okay? A den, think about your house, right? Depending on what size house you have, you, you have some sort of foyer, right, where people walk in. And then many times people have like a formal uh, uh, living room, not all the time. I know I don't have money for that, but maybe you do, right? Some people have a foyer. Some people have a, a uh, uh, formal uh, uh, living room. And then every house has a den or a living room, a place where the family does life. What I love about that phrase, dwelling place, is that what Moses is saying is that God is our den. God is our living room. He's not our foyer. Uh, he's not our, our formal dining room. No, God is our den. He is the place in all generations where believers have gone to find rest, to find refuge, and to find comfort. Isn't, isn't that beautiful? I love that. I love that idea that God has been our den, our, our living room for all generations. Think about this. When I was back in uh, several years ago, when I was a youth pastor, one of the, the places that I would take my youth groups to uh, was this place in uh, Southern Illinois called Carmi, Illinois. It was, the town was named Carmi, Illinois. And Carmi, Illinois had this uh, Baptist children's home. And what we would do is once a year, uh, we would go as a youth group and, and this children's home was for at-risk teens who were having issues at home and they would come for an indefinite period of time. Sometimes it was months, sometimes it was years. And they they would stay at this home 
and they would get a Christian education uh, and they would live uh, with these uh, house parents. It was this really cool ministry. And so every summer, uh, my youth ministry, whatever youth ministry I was leading, we would go to this place called Baptist Children's Home in Carmi, Illinois. What was beautiful about it, though, was that there was this house that every youth group that visited stayed at. There was only one house on the property that visitors can stay at. So when we would go, uh, there was this living room in this little bitty house. And what I loved about what they did is that over the years, and this was years, years of this, every time a youth group would come in, Right when the youth group was leaving, they would take a picture and they would put the picture of the youth group on the wall. So when you would sit in this living room, when you would sit in this den, what was beautiful is you could literally look around and see years of all these different youth groups that had come through that house and that had sat in that very same living room and that very same den to do ministry together. And in those moments when you would look around, it was overwhelming because there were so many uh, pictures, so many frames that you, you felt like you were part of something bigger. I would argue that that's exactly what this passage makes us feel like. That when we think about God, God is our dwelling place. God is our living room. Uh, God is our den. And, and how encouraging is it to know that, that I was processing this week, it kind of overwhelmed me if I'm, if I'm being honest, is I think about all the, the spiritual heroes in my life. As I think about uh, the, the preacher evangelist, uh, George Whitfield, as I think about Charles Spurgeon, as I think about A.W. Tozer, as I think about uh, C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> the same God that they pray to, uh, the same God that they turn to, the, the same God that they found their refuge and their rest in is the same exact God that I get to pray to today. Isn't that amazing? That God is our dwelling place from generation to generation. So here's what I need you to see about God. I don't care what you do in life. I don't care what titles you get. I don't care what you accomplish. The only way you're going to have, you're going to have any sort of permanence in your life, the only way that you're going to have any sort of solid foundation in your life, the only way that you can find any sort of anchor for your existence is if you tether yourself and anchor yourself to God. Because God is the only one who was here before us and will be here long after us. Because he has been our dwelling place for all generations. Now, here's the thing. That, that idea should be encouraging to us, right? But I would argue that it was, would have been even more encouraging to the original author and to the original audience. And here's why. I kind of read past it earlier, but this psalm, Psalm 90, is a very unique psalm because Psalm 90 uh, was written not by David, uh, not by one of the sons of Korah, which we saw a couple weeks ago, but Psalm 90 is the only psalm written by D- Moses, Moses is the author of Psalm 90. So what that tells us about Psalm 90 is that Psalm 90 is by far the oldest of all the Psalms. And it's not even close. It is centuries older than the other Psalms because Moses lived way before David or the sons of Korah. Now, let me give you some background and kind of give you an idea of what the context was for Psalm 90. I feel that context is everything. If you're new to the Bible, let me tell you a little bit about who Moses is was. Uh, if you go back to the, be- the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, the, the people of Israel find themselves in Egypt and uh, uh, the, a new Pharaoh raises up and this new Pharaoh, instead of seeing Israel and the Israelites as a, an ally, he sees them as a threat. 
And so they continue to grow. Uh, they continue to multiply. Kids are just popping out left and right. And so he gets threatened by them. And what he decides to do is he decides to kill all the Hebrew boys. So Moses is born and his parents, being good parents, don't want to have their child killed. And so what they decide to do is they decide out of faith to put Moses in a basket and to send him down the Nile River. They, they proceed to do that and God in his sovereignty helps Moses be saved by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing by the river. There's a good chance that Moses sister and his mom saw uh, Moses, uh, saw Pharaoh's daughter and they sent him out uh, right at that time. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby. She takes him into the house. She adopts him. So, so Moses grows up in this really weird uh, uh, dichotomy where on the one hand, he's a Hebrew. And yet on the other hand, he's born a Hebrew, but he's being raised as uh, Egyptian royalty. Now, here's the thing about Moses' life. Uh, to really get a summary of Moses' life, you can't really look at Moses' life in days, but you almost have to look at it in decades. And here's why. Because essentially, Moses' life is broken up into three major parts. There, it's one period of 40 years, another period of 40 years, and then a third period of 40 years. Three periods of 40 years. So Moses, he grows up uh, in Pharaoh's palace, and then we are told uh, in Exodus that he goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew, an Israelite, one of his kinsmen. And he gets angry, he gets defensive, and so he tries to deliver his people, if you will, in his own strength. And it says that he goes out, he kills the Egyptian, and buries his body. Once people find out what he did, we are told that he escapes into the wilderness Okay, but here's what's interesting. If you're not careful, because the story of Exodus moves so quickly, you might be tempted to think that Moses was 18 years old when that happened, that Moses was 25 years old, that he was 30 years old when that happened. But what we see when we look at the entirety of Moses' life, Moses was already 40 years old on the day that he killed. He was right around 40 when he killed that Egyptian. When he finds out that his, his own life is in danger, he goes out into the wilderness and he is a shepherd for several years. When he is out in the wilderness, God shows up and, in, in a burning bush and calls Moses to be the deliverer of his people. Again, if all you're doing is reading through scripture, because the Bible moves so quickly, you would think that it's only been a few weeks or a few months or even a few years. But the reality is it's been another 40 years. When God shows up to Moses in the bush, Moses is already 80 years old. That's a long time. But when we read through scripture, it's easy for us to minimize just how much time is actually passing. So God tells Moses, I need you to go back to Egypt and to deliver my people. After arguing for a little bit, Moses finally agrees and he heads back to Egypt. Now here's the thing. Um, and maybe you've never heard this before. It might even sound a little bit heretical. I don't know how many scholars would agree with me, but if Moses was really 80 years old when he left Midian and went back to Egypt, think about it. If he was 80 years old, there is a good chance, a very, very good chance that on the way back, Moses was driving a Lincoln town car with his blinker on the whole way. Because let's be honest, that's what 80 year olds do. Amen. Uh, anyways, so he, so he, it's in the Hebrew. If you look in the Hebrew, uh, you'll see it. So, so he's 80 years old and he goes back to Egypt 
And when he gets there, God uses him to deliver his people. And then after he delivers his people, they head out. They head out towards the promised land. But here's what's fascinating about Moses' life. If you look at Exodus chapter 14, I believe, in Exodus chapter 14, God literally tells Moses, as you are leaving, I don't want you to take the shortest way back through the land of the Philistines. I want you to take the long way that will take you by the Red Sea. What I need you to see is that in Moses' life, God rarely went the fastest route. He usually went the most fruitful route, okay? And here's where I want to pause real quick. I want you to know that many times God is not in the business of taking you the fastest route. He is in the business of taking you the most fruitful route. God literally says to Moses, I don't want you to go the short way through the land of the Philistines because there's a good chance that the people will uh, get discouraged and turn back. I want you to go the longer way. Man, how often do we want God to take us the fastest route? And God never promises to take us the fastest route. He will always take us the most fruitful route. We, we want a microwave and God gives us a crock pot, right? We want to hit 30 seconds and be done with a season or, or be done with the journey. And God is not a microwave God. God is a crock pot God. He doesn't take us the fastest route. He takes us the most fruitful route. So, Moses and the Israelites, they get to the land of Canaan, and we are told that Moses sends out 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the land of Canaan. When they get back, two of the guys, Joshua and Caleb, are like, man, we can take these guys. God is with us. Everything is good. The problem is the other 10 didn't have that kind of faith. They didn't have uh, 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 that kind of hope in God. They were terrified, and they're like, there's no way that we can take this land. These people are giants and they're vicious and there's no way that we can take this land. So God, because of their lack of faith, he ends up punishing that entire generation. And what God informs Moses of is that everyone who is over 20 will die before they enter the promised land. So so think about it. Everyone over the age of 20 would have to die as punishment before God would allow them to have a chance to go back into the promised land. So God essentially informs them that for 40 years, they are going to wander in the desert. God literally says, for the 40 days, the, the, the spies were gone for 40 days. He says, for each one of those days, you guys are gonna spend a year in the wilderness. So for 40 years, Moses, the pastor of this flock, has to see an entire generation die in front of him. Now, now think about this. Scholars estimate that the people of Israel were somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million people when they left Egypt. Can you imagine how many people had to die for an entire generation to disappear? I would argue, and I don't think it's even close, that the pastor who's done the most funerals in human history was Moses. Because for an entire generation to die in a period of 40 years, that is a lot of people dying. That is a lot of grandparents. That is a lot of parents. That is a lot of uncles and aunts and cousins and siblings. That's a lot of people who had to die in order for this curse to fully be absorbed. Think about this. There's a good chance that every time the Israelites moved camp, they were leaving graves behind, okay? Now, what commentators say is that uh, uh, um, Psalm 90 was actually written at a very specific time in Moses' life. I tell you all this, and this is where I'm building up to. 
Moses has already been burying people left and right. Every time they camp, there are more graves and more graves, more funerals and more graves, more funerals and more graves, right? But then in Numbers chapter 20, he's already in a valley. I would say that Numbers chapter 20, which commentators say is the context, the background for Psalm 90, is the lowest point in the valley. Here's why. Because in Numbers chapter 20, three things happen to Moses all at once. The first thing that happens is his sister dies, Miriam. The second thing that happens is his brother dies, Aaron. And then the third thing that happens in Numbers 20 is Moses strikes the rock out of anger. He gets so frustrated with God's people. Now, mind you, Moses is almost 120 by now and old people get cranky, okay? Uh, and, and so he has just been dealing with these people for years. I promise I'm not trying to throw old people under the bus, by the way. I, the, the Lincoln Town Car joke and not, I love old people, okay? Just, just so you know. Um, but, 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 but Moses, in, in Numbers 20, his, his sister dies. His brother dies, and then out of frustration, he, he hits the rock, a rock that God didn't tell him to hit. And as a result of his anger, as a result of him putting himself in the place of God, God inform, informs Moses, not only is your brother dead, not only is your sister dead, but you are going to die, and you are not going to enter uh, the promised land that you so desperately have been wanting to see. This promised land that you have been, you've been waiting years to eventually enter. So, so I say all that to say there's a lot going on in Moses' life when he writes this. So when he says that God has been our dwelling place from generation to generation, that means something to us. But I would argue that it means infinitely more to them. A, a, a group of people who, who were living out of tents and suitcases, who didn't have a home yet, that for 40 years were wandering, he can say, even though we are in the wilderness, even though we are wandering, even though we are living out of tents and suitcases, you are our dwelling place. You are where we find our refuge, our rest, and our comfort. And then he says that God is everlasting. It's from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then in verse four, he says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So, so to give you an idea of how long, how, how, how eternal God actually is, Moses says that a thousand years is in his sight is like 24 hours, or like four hours. Here's what I mean. When he says a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, he's making reference to a 24-hour period. Then it's almost like he says, no, that's still too long. It's almost like a watch in the night, which a watch in the night in those days was only four hours. He says that a thousand years in God's sight is like 24 hours or more likely like four hours. That's how eternal God is. So let me, let me kind of put this in context, in, in context. If a thousand years in God's eyes is 24 hours, then that means Jesus died and resurrected two days ago. If it's four hours, then that means that Jesus died and resurrected eight hours ago in God's sight. Just to give you context of how eternal God is. Let me give you another example. If, if, if it's like, if a thousand years is like 24 hours or like four hours, then it means that Moses, his life, which was 3,000 years ago, was like three days ago for God. And, or 12 hours ago, if you're going with the, 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 night of, the, 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 the watch in the night. You think about the pyramids of Giza, who these ancient pyramids that are so old. Well, if you do the math, that's about four days in God's time and about, or 16 hours if you're doing the, the, the night, you know, the watch in the night. And I did the math, and I'm not really good at math, so these numbers might be wrong, so bear with me. I did the math. In light of that math, that a 1,000 years is like 24 hours and or 
uh, four hours. The United States, you know how old the United States is? In God's eyes, the United States is about an hour old. We've been around for about an hour if you're using that timeline. And if you look at how long human beings live, where he says 70 to 80, if you go with the higher number 80, that means that our lifetime, based on that criteria, is about eight minutes, okay? So that just gives you an idea of how eternal God is. It gives you an idea of just how everlasting God truly is. So the first thing that we see here is we see God's time. The second thing that I want you to see here in this passage is I want you to see man's time, man's time. Look what it says um, in the next section. I'm going to read verse 5 all the way through verse 11. Here's what it says in verse 5. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So the second thing that I want us to see this morning is I want you to see man's relationship with time. And what Moses does here in this psalm, in this section that I just read, verses 5 through 11, is he compares God's eternality from verses 1 through 4 to our mortality and frailty, verses 5 through 11. Moses really wants us to see just how frail we are, just how mortal we are, just how brief our lives really are. And in order to do that, he actually gives us four illustrations to show just how brief our lives truly are. The the first illustration that he uses in verse 3 is he describes us as dust. And, and why does he describe us as dust? Well, what scholars say is that Moses is actually hearkening back to Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 2. When God creates us, he creates us from dust, right? And Moses says, and, and is, which is interesting because uh, if you look at the way the Bible's written, Moses actually wrote that chapter. He wrote, he wrote this chapter and that chapter, so he's referring back to something that he wrote. And in Genesis 2 and 3, we discover that man was created from dust, And so Moses says, this is what one commentator said, man said, uh, he says that man is part dust, part divinity. We are part divinity because we are made in the image of God, but then we are part dust because we are made from the earth. So the first image that Moses uses to show us just how brief our lives are is he describes us as dust. The next illustration that he uses to show us how brief our lives is, is he uses an illustration of a flood. Now, here's the thing about floods. In in those days, in the ancient Near East, and it's actually still common today, one of the things that happens, it's a very arid, very dry area. But during certain seasons of the the year, um, there is heavy rains that fall. And these rains almost always fall on the mountains or on the hills. What starts to happen when when, when that happens, if if the rains are strong enough, what will happen is this, even if it's only brief, a torrential flood will come down, down into the valleys and down into the wadis, which was this, this piece of land. And so here's what I need you to see. Moses is saying that our lives, when our lives are over, 
they end like that. There, there, there's, no one sees it coming. And just like a, an unsuspecting flood just wipes out something out in the wilderness is exactly how death is. It's, it's an unexpected uh, torrential flood that comes in and just sweeps us away. He doesn't just use dust and he doesn't just use a flood. He also uses the illustration of a dream. He says that we are like a dream. Think about a dream, right? When you're in a dream, a dream feels like it lasts forever. And it feels so real when you're in it. But the reality is once you wake up at night, you realize that it was only for a few minutes that you were dreaming and you forget about it almost as, quick, almost as quickly as it showed up. And he says that our lives are like a dream, a dream that happens in the evening and is gone by the morning. And then uh, the final illustration that he uses to, to describe the brevity of our lives is he describes us as grass. Now, the, 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 the picture that people would have had of grass back then is totally different from the one that we have today. Back then, because this was a dry, arid desert, uh, grass wouldn't last as long as it lasts right now. Here's what would happen. Because the nights in the desert were so cold, what would happen in the morning is there would be this dew all throughout the hillside. And because of this dew, what would happen is these little shoots of grass would start shooting up. So in the morning, around eight or nine in the morning, you would go out and you would see these little shoots of grass with all this potential starting to grow. But by noon, when the sun was blistering hot at the, at the height of, of, of the day, right, when the sun is blistering, uh, it, what would happen is that, that grass would start to die. It would start to wither away. And then by evening, that grass that a few hours ago had all this potential would be withered to the point of dying. What he says is that we are like grass that, that, that spurts, you know, shoots up in the morning and there's all this potential. And then over time, literally within a few hours, the sun withers us away. The word there, wither, it means to wilt. It means to fade away. It literally means to lose potency. That, that, that as time goes on, we start to lose potency. In, this, in the passage, he talks about that our lives, our years end with a sigh. The word there really isn't a sigh, it's a groan. Like the older we get, the more we, we wilt away. We wither away and there's more groans because of the pain and we're just, we're just withering away. And so what he wants us to see is that life is very brief. And he uses four illustrations. He's a good preacher. He uses four illustrations to prove just how short life actually is. But here's the thing. It's not just Moses that talks to us about this. All throughout scripture, we learn about just how brief life is. Let me read to you um, some other parts from scripture that talk to us about the brevity of our lives. Psalm 39 verse four says this, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. Look what it says in Job 7, 6. It says, my days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle. I don't know if you've ever seen a weaver's shuttle, but it moves. He says, my days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle. They end without hope. Look at the next one. Ecclesiastes 7 says this. 
and real quick, many times what we what we do is we we we, we, we you, maybe you're hearing me talk about this and you're like, man, how morbid is this sermon? Why are we talking about death? Like, why are we talking about the brevity of life? Let's talk about uh, the 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 vigor of life. Let's talk about our how how, how much we you know how much life we have left. Well, here's what Ecclesiastes seven says. It's written by Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived apart from Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it's a real stat. Uh, uh, 10, out of people, 10, 10 out of 10 people die. I don't know if you know that stat, but it's true, okay? She says, after all, everyone dies, so, he, so the living should take this to heart. And then he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. Then he says, a wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool only thinks about having a good time. Think about this for a second. If, if Moses prays, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom, then what Ecclesiastes is telling us, if you don't pray and, and you don't learn to number your days, instead of a heart of wisdom, you have a heart of what? Foolishness. Because only a fool ignores death. Then in James chapter four, here's what it says. Look here. You who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. There goes that year language again, right? We love talking in months and years and decades. He says, we will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Forget about next year. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Then he says, your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants to or if the Lord wills or Lord willing, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, listen to this, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So maybe you never heard of this verse. Well, now you know it. And if you do not pretend or act as if life is going to end, and you don't know when life's going to end, right? James says that even tomorrow is not guaranteed. And so if, if this, this is an application point for all of us here, okay? You do not know when your time will end. And so every time you make a plan, and that plan has anything to do with tomorrow or the end of the week, or a month from now, or the end of this quarantine, you better put Lord willing somewhere in that passage, or in that sentence, or in that, the, the, the statement that you're making. One of the things that happened earlier this year is Kobe Bryant died. And many of you might not know this, but Kobe Bryant is my, by far my favorite athlete of all time. I had a chance to almost meet Kobe. I went to Moody Bible Institute, and the, the, the teams that would play the Bulls would come to uh, the, the gym, Solheim Center, which was the gym over at Moody. All these teams before they would play the Bulls would come and practice there. And so I knew the Lakers were coming and I showed up with my jersey and I wanted to, to meet Kobe. And I remember I, uh, Lily was with me and there's more to the story, but I just, I, I'm going to summarize it quickly. I had a gospel track and I had a gospel track and I had written Kobe a message because I wanted to share the gospel with Kobe Bryant. And I remember I got there early and um, the team ended up coming out and because of security and the weight, all, I didn't end up getting to him. And I remember that my biggest regret was that I didn't share the gospel with Kobe Bryant. But for some reason, because he was this celebrity, because he was this star, I feel like there was a part of me that thought, well, Kobe Bryant's going to live forever. Like that's Kobe. You don't even need to say his last name. Everyone knows him just by Kobe. Kobe's going to be around. Man, and when Kobe Bryant died uh, a few months ago, 
I bawled. Like I, I can tell you, right? I there was people texting me like if I had lost a friend because they knew how much I cared and how much I I I, I respected him, and, and 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 immediately I felt this guilt. Like man, well, I, maybe I should have done more to share the gospel with Kobe. Maybe I should have done more to give him the good news. I don't know where Kobe was with the Lord, but what I can tell you, here's what I can tell you, that Kobe, just like all of us, should have said, "Lord willing," because no one, no one knows when their time is up. So even if this is all you take away from my message, from now on, if you make a plan, any type of plan, and don't have Lord willing attached to it, James says you are sinning because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. Okay? Then the other thing that I want you to see here is that in our culture, one of the things that we are tempted to do in our culture is that since our culture doesn't really have a, a, a space for God, uh, they don't really have a, a theology of God. What they also don't have a theology for is death. And so I don't think I've ever seen a culture that avoids death and ignores death and tries to delay death more than our culture. And our culture does this in many ways with the language that we use, with the surgeries that we have. Like we have surgeries that try to delay the fact that we're looking old, right? Um, with the products that we use. Even the fact that we have hospitals and nursing homes is a way for us to put the sick, dying people away. If, if we don't have to see people withering away, if we don't have to see people dying, then we don't have to deal with death. See, in Moses' day, there wasn't nursing homes. In Moses' day, uh, there wasn't hospitals. People had to see their relatives, their friends, their families die. Our culture does everything in our power to push that away. We, we avoid it, we ignore it, we delay it. Even when people die, what do you do? What do you pay the, the funeral director money for? At the wake, what do you want them to do? You want to make that body, that dead body, look as alive as possible. Like they are just sleeping. Why? Because our culture does not know what to do with death. What's fascinating is that when you look at church history, though, all throughout church history, Christians had a much more, uh, uh, they had a much greater awareness about death than we had. As a matter of fact, I found out this week that Jonathan Edwards, the, the great pastor and theologian, when he became a Christian, he became a Christian around the age of 17. He was already in full-time ministry by the age of 18, okay? When he was 18 and 19, he wrote what are called his resolutions. And they were these statements that he made, these commitments that he was making to God before he got into ministry. Out of the first five resolutions that he had, I think four of them had to do with his management of his time. And in his prayer, he literally prays, Lord, I want you to stamp eternity on my eyeballs so that I can minister differently. So I can always minister with the end in mind. The other thing I discovered is that throughout church history, even in medieval times, what Christian scholars would do is they would actually put human skulls, actual skulls, on the top of their study, right above their desk, so that as they worked for the Lord, they would have a constant reminder that life was brief and that every day counted. That just gives you an idea of how different uh, we are today from people in the past. Look at what Job chapter 14, verse 5 says. He says, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live and, are not, and we are not given a minute longer. It says God has already predecided the length of your life. And you know, God, only God, God knows how many months you will live and we will not be given a minute longer. Then look what it says in Hebrews. 
Hebrews 9, 27, it says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That, that Greek word there literally means that God has already predetermined when you will die. There's an appointment between you and God. And, and here's what you got to know about me. Your boy is always running about one to two minutes late to every appointment, to every meeting. I just, it's just kind of a habit I have. I should fix it, but, you know, uh, pray for me. There's one appointment that I'm not going to miss. I don't even know when it is, but I'm not going to be late to it because the Bible says that God has appointed for each man to die once. There's literally, according to Job 14, there's a time that God is going to call you to himself and you will not live a minute longer. And then in the passage, he says that, uh, that, that it's, uh, it says, uh, we will live either 70 to 80 years. He gives us like a range, right? Maybe 70. And if, if you have strength, maybe 80. But 80 is like 10 years extra. Here's what's funny. When I first came across that this week, I thought, oh, well, that's just Moses, right? This is Moses' time. People lived to 70 and 80 back then because they didn't have the technology we had. They, they didn't have the modern science that we have. But with all of our modern medicine and all the things that we have, we, we live way longer. But then I found something out that I didn't know. I discovered that according to the 2020 census data, the average woman lives, lives 81.9 years. The average man lives 77.1 years, okay? So this isn't just ancient history, no modern medicine. No, no. To this day, the average of a woman's life and the average of a man's life is right in that range of 70 to 80. To this day. So I started doing math. I was like, okay, it, let, let, me, let me put it to you like this. And I'm not even mad. I did a lot of math, guys. You should be proud of me. I took pre-algebra for three years in a row. So this is a big thing, okay? But let me, let me explain it to you like this. I am, Lord willing, going to turn 35 in August. So let's go with the shorter number, 70, the, the, the shorter time span. Once I hit 35, according to Moses, I have lived half my life. So I did the math. There are 12,775 days in 35 years. So then that would mean I have, if I live to 70, Lord willing, that means I have 12,775 days left. But here's why I don't. Because once you subtract sleeping, once you subtract working, once you subtract emails, uh, once you subtract traffic, I really only have about 600 days left, okay? So, so that just gives you an idea of how short life actually is. Life is really, really short, you guys. And the quicker we are to embrace that, the quicker we are to uh, 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 accept that, since, since, we, since every day counts, we must learn to count every day. Every day counts, so the least we can do is count every day. All our days are numbered, so the least we can do is number our days. Here's the last thing I'll say, and I'll end with this before I go to the last point. One of the things that's happening in this season is you have people who are aware, uh, so let me say this. I, I believe that we as believers should be aware of the coronavirus. We shouldn't be anxious about it. I believe that we should be careful. We shouldn't be cons consumed by it. And here's what I mean. The Bible says that worry and anxiety are sin. Even if you struggle with it chemically, it's a result of Genesis 3 sin, right? So, so worry and anxiety are a sin. Jesus says that. It's all throughout. Uh, James brings the same thing up. That worry and anxiety are a, are, are a sin, okay? Now think about this. I believe, in light of that, 
in light of this fact that our days are numbered, I believe that we as Christians should be aware of the coronavirus, but we shouldn't be anxious. I believe that we should be careful, but we shouldn't be consumed. I can't tell you how many Christians are walking around with fear, with terrified of this virus. If the Bible, what the Bible says is true, that your day of dying is appointed, then what that means is, and don't miss this, if God wants to take you during this time, even with all the precautions you're taking, you're gonna go. And if God doesn't want you to take you during this time, you're not gonna go, okay? So I'm not saying not to be aware, and I'm not saying not to be careful, but what I am saying is, in light of these passages, we shouldn't be anxious, and we shouldn't be consumed. So, that's God's time. That's man's time. The last thing I want to do here is I want to tell you how we can synchronize time. If we know what God's time is, what can we do to make sure that our time is synchronized with God's time? And according to this passage, there's actually two ways that we can synchronize our time with God's time. There's a part that we play, and then there's a part that God plays. Let me, let me start with the part that we play. Look what it says here uh, in verses 12 through 17 of the passage. Moses writes, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for the many days as you have, for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as you have, uh, as many days as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And then verse 17, let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So according to Moses, there is a part that we play in synchronizing our time with God's time. There's a three-part prayer that Moses says we should be playing if we are to synchronize our clocks with God's clock, our watch with God's watch. He says, if you're taking notes, write this down. First thing we should do is we should pray, Lord, teach us. The second thing we should do, second thing we should do is we should pray, Lord, satisfy us. And the third thing we should pray is, Lord, establish us. Teach us, satisfy us, establish us. The first thing he says is, Lord, teach us. Lord, teach us. Look what it says um, in verse 12. In verse 12 of the passage, it says, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Then verse 13 says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. But the word I want you to see there is the word, that phrase, teach us. What, what, what I love about that prayer, and I, I don't know about you, but I know I haven't been praying this way, is that we should be praying daily, Lord, teach us to number our days. In other words, what that implies is that we don't currently know that. We, we don't have that information by default. We, we, need to be, we need to learn how to number our days. We have to pray, God, teach us to number our days. That's the first implication. The, the other thing I want you to see... <clears throat> The other thing that I want you to see that I think is really important is that as he says, teach us to number our days, not to name them, but to number them. Why do I bring that up? Because in the Old Testament, in Genesis, one of the things that God has Adam do is Adam names the animal, the animals. The reason why Adam names the animals is because what it is showing is that Adam had authority over these animals. And so out of his authority, he numbered the animal. I mean, he named them. The, the Bible doesn't say to name our days, but to number them. Why? 
because our days don't belong to us. They belong to God. So often we talk about our time like it's our time. I want it's my alone time or my free time. Your time doesn't belong to you. We don't get to name our days. We are called to number them. And then he says, when we do that, we will get a heart of wisdom. The word there, wisdom, is to take knowledge and to apply it to your life. It's to take truth and to apply it to your life. To take doctrine and to apply it to your life. The more we number our days, the more we will get a heart of wisdom. So the first prayer is teach us. The second prayer, though, is to satisfy us. Look what he says here uh, in verse 14. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Then he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. His second prayer is, Lord, satisfy us. The word there in Hebrew is literally the prayer that we should be praying is, Lord, every morning I need you to fill me up. Every morning I need you to have your love and your joy and your grace and your work, which is the gospel, overflow within me so that I can be fully satisfied with you. If we are going to be people that, that make every day count, if every day counts, then we have to make every day count, right? If we are going to be people that number our days well, we have to pray, Lord, satisfy us in the morning. Satisfy us with your word. Satisfy us with your gospel. Satisfy us with your truth so that we can overflow in love, in joy, and in gospel freedom. Then the third prayer that we need to pray if we are going to be people who number our days, is not only do we have to pray, Lord, teach us, Lord, satisfy us, but the third prayer is, Lord, establish us. He says in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word there, establish, here's what it means, and I love this. The word establish, it means to confirm something. It means to authenticate uh, authenticate something. It means to reinforce something. It means to give something validation. It means to give something a lasting impact. We need to pray, Lord, whatever I am up to, I pray that I would be up to whatever you want me to be up to because I need you to establish the work of my hands. I need to make sure that I join you in your agenda. I don't want you to join me in my agenda. I want to join you in your agenda. I don't want you to join me in my work. I want to join you in your work. Lord, please help me to, to make sure that I am so sensitive to your spirit that I am about the things that you are about so that you can establish, reinforce, authenticate, and confirm the work of our hands. God, I can't push this plow by myself. I need your hand on my hand so that we can push this plow together. I love that. Here's the thing I want to say really quick that's important about this idea of establish the work of our hands. And I'll talk about this more in the future, but I think it's important for me to camp out here. There's a difference between your calling and your capacity. We all have all been given a capacity. And we live in a culture that tells us you should live to your capacity. Whatever you're capable of, that's the level you should be living at. The Bible doesn't call you to live to your capacity. The Bible calls you to live to your calling. What God calls you to is different from what you are capable of. So here's what I need you to know. There's usually a gap between God's calling and your capacity. Why? Because God doesn't just want you to do your job. He doesn't just want you to do whatever it is you, you think your capacity is. God is also calling you to be a good Christian. He's also calling you to be a good spouse. He's also calling you to be a good parent. He's also calling you to spend time with him. He's also calling you to observe the Sabbath. So there's almost always a gap between your capacity and God's calling. But we fall into the lie that the only way I can manage my time is by always living to my capacity. That's not what this passage is saying. 
We pray, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Help me know what you want me to do. Not what I want to do. Not what my boss wants me to do. Not what my spouse wants me to do. Not what the world wants me to do. Help me to know what you want me to do so that I can focus on my calling and not on my capacity. So that's the three-part prayer. Lord, teach us, satisfy us, and establish us. So that's man's part. That's the role that we can play. Now, what I want to do here as I conclude is I want to look at God's part. I want to look at the role that God plays. Because here's the thing. As we, here's the problem. The problem is, is that you and I can only do so much. We can try. We, we should pray that prayer. That should be a part of our daily prayer. But at the end of the day, you and I can only do so much. God has to play a part. And I would say it's the bigger part, the greatest part, okay? See, in this passage, Moses doesn't just tell us what to do about our time. He actually tells us why we have a problem with time to begin with. And what Moses wants you to know and wants us to know is that our problem is not necessarily a calendar problem. It's a sin problem. How do I know that? Well, if you look at the passage, there are examples all throughout the text where Moses wants you to know that our greatest problem is not a calendar problem. Our greatest problem is a sin problem. And what we need is not a better daily planner. What we need is not a personal assistant. What we need is not a palm pilot. What we need is something greater because our primary problem is not a calendar problem. It's a sin problem. And just in case you don't believe me, look what it says in verse three of the passage. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Then in verse seven, he says this, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse nine, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. So, so here's what I need you to see. The Moses is saying that the reason why we have a problem with time is not because we need a personal assistant, is not because we need another self-help time management book, but because of God's wrath. He goes back to Genesis chapter three because what he wants you and I to know is that the reason why our days have been shortened, the reason why we die, the reason why death has entered the world is because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And that's why Moses, he gets so overwhelmed that he literally gets to a place in the passage where he cries out for mercy. He cries out for, for pity. He says, God, you have to have mercy on us. You, you have to have pity on us because I, I could, we can pray all we want, but even if we pray, all we are dealing with is the fruit of our problem, not with the root of our problem. And Moses, he, he's, he's so overwhelmed by the wrath and the anger of God towards our sin that he says in verse 11, look what he says in verse 11. He says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses is like, who really? understands your anger? Who truly understands your wrath? Who truly understands how bad this situation is? I would argue that in all of human history, there was only one person who truly understood God's anger. There's only one person who truly understood God's wrath. And that person wasn't the first Moses. It was the greater Moses. You see, the first Moses can describe our problem, but he can't deliver us from it. The first Moses can uh, address our problem, but he couldn't absolve us from it. The first Moses cries out and points us to the greater Moses, the greater Moses who came to do the greater work, who came to deliver God's people from a greater enemy and give us a greater exodus so that we can end up at a greater promised land. The, think about this. Who, who is this greater Moses? Well, the first Moses was an infant and as an infant, there was a pagan king who was trying to kill him. 
the greater Moses was also an infant who had a pagan king trying to kill him. The, the, the first Moses, think about it, had to go into Egypt in order to find safety and shelter from this pagan king. The, the greater Moses also had to go to Egypt in order to find safety and shelter from this pagan king. The, the, the first Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness, was tested again and again and again, and failed every single time. The greater Moses spent 40 days in the wilderness and passed every single test in temptation. The, the first Moses left the palace in order to go deliver, and, and to, to, he left the palace in order to carry out God's will. The, the greater Moses left an even greater palace in order to carry out God's will. Think about this. The, the first Moses goes up onto a mountain. He receives God's word and then comes down with the word of God. The greater Moses goes up into the mountain and when he comes down, he sits down on the mountainside and he's not delivering God's word for him. He is God's word. He, he is declaring the word of God himself. The first Moses goes up to a mountain and he, he sees the glory of God and his face reflects the glory of God. The greater Moses goes up to the mountain with, with his disciples and he doesn't reflect the glory of God. He, he pulls back the veil and he is the glory of God. That is the greater Moses. The greater Moses, here's the beautiful thing about the greater Moses. The, 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 the first Moses could, could pray for, for bread to come down from heaven. The, the greater Moses was able to multiply bread in order to feed people in the wilderness. Listen, the, the first Moses brought an old covenant. The greater Moses brings a new covenant. The first Moses died on a hill for his own sins. The greater Moses died on a hill for our sins. Jesus Christ is the greater Moses. It says in, in 2 Timothy, it says that there is only one mediator between God and man. There's only one mediator between God and man, and his name is not Moses. His name is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why in Luke chapter 9, you think that the last time we see Moses is here in the Old Testament, but in Luke chapter 9, Moses shows up again, and he's up on a mountain. He's up on the mountain and he never really, he got to see the promised land, but he never really got to experience the victory. He never got to experience the peace and, and all the things that the promised land uh, were, were, was going to give him. But, but we think that the last time we see Moses is in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is up on the mountain and two characters from the Old Testament show up, two of them, Elijah and who? Moses. Why? Because Elijah represented the prophets. Moses represented the law. Combined, they represented the Old Testament, and they were showing us that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Moses saw the glory of God. God in his grace, God in his mercy, allowed Moses to see his son. That's crazy, guys. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's why we now can number our days and be glad in our days all at the same time. If, if Before the gospel, you can't number your days and be glad all your days at the same time. Because when you number them, you get depressed. When you number them, you get sad. But in the gospel, now we can number our days and be glad all our days because Jesus took care of our sin and God's wrath and God's anger. And then in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, here's what it says. I love this. That right when we are helpless, because that's what this is, 
Psalm 90 is the, a picture of our helplessness. Romans 5, verse 6, it says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. He didn't come just at any time. He came at just the right time to die for you and for me. And because Jesus did what he did, now like the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1, we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus came and took care of this secret sin, of these iniquities that are set before God. He took care of all our sin. Jesus took our sin. It says that he buried it at the bottom of the ocean. It says that our sin is now behind the back of God. So he doesn't see it anymore. It says that our sin has been taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. It says that our sin in Jesus now has been forgotten by God. Come on, church. Man, the more you meditate on that, the more you think about that, the more you allow the Spirit to teach you about that, the more that will satisfy your soul. Man, once you understand that salvation and heaven are settled, all of a sudden, you can be free from self-preservation. You can be free from self-protection, and you can start living your life for the glory of God and for the good of others. Every day counts. So the reason why we should make every day count is because every day counts. Hey, listen, if you're sitting here this morning and... Uh, you have yet to place your faith in Jesus. You, you want to know who this Jesus is? I want to invite you today to place your faith in him. Listen, I don't, I don't know how long you have on this earth. I don't know. There's a large audience listening to this right now. I don't know uh, if you're sitting in a room with people. I don't know when the, the, who's going to go first. I have no idea. But what I know is that it is appointed for every man to die once. And that one day we will have to stand before God. And one day there will be judgment. There will be judgment. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, I, I hear what you're saying and, and, and I want to know this God, but you don't, you don't know what I've done. I've been, I've been in really bad places. I've done really bad things. Well, I need you to know that it says here in the passage that even our secret sins are before God. Whatever that thing is that you think disqualifies you from the love and grace of God, even our secret sins are laid out before him. And one of the things I said a few months ago in one of our series is that that sin that you can't seem to forget is the very same sin that God refuses to remember. And that in the gospel, there is hope. In the gospel, there is forgiveness. See, Jesus brings up hell more than anyone in the Bible. Not because he hated us, but because he loved us. And he wanted to know that we're going to spend eternity somewhere. We're all going to spend eternity somewhere. We might not be everlasting like God is, but we are immortal. We, don't, we never die. We will spend either our eternity in heaven or in hell. My prayer, my hope is that today, would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. The Bible says the only thing you have to do is to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. You, you take the moment, you, you pray, you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life and to, to, to take this, this brief life here on earth and to have him save it, rescue it, and dedicate it to him. I pray that today would be the day that you make that decision, that today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. Remember, every day counts regardless of whether we make it count or not. But I would argue we should make every day count because every day counts. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, <clears throat> thank you for today and we thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, its truth. 
I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, um, that the people here who um, have yet to, if someone just prayed or wants to pray, I pray that they would do just that, that they would pray and they would respond to you. They would text the number uh, 97000 to High Point, that today would be the day that they change the focus of their life, place their faith in you as their Lord and their Savior. Help us, Lord, to number our days because our days are numbered. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.